up, everyone? Welcome to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-host. So I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we have a really exciting episode for you today. Can you guys hear it? I am, like, stoked. (laughs) Seriously, I'm so excited about this. We've, and I think it's in part because, you know, we had a blast recording the last episode, giving you a recap of the movie, right? The first National Treasure movie, showing you how we see the movie and picking out the finer points that only someone who's seen it about 50 times or more can point out to you. But for this episode, we actually had to do a lot of research. Yeah, and doing the research, I have to say, there are a lot of things that when, you know, I watch the movie, I always question. And I think we've questioned when we've watched it together, Aubrey, Uh, Like, is this real? Could this actually happen? And I've never really taken the opportunity to go and look that up before. But now having the chance to do it through this form and bring the information to other people, I think it's going to help answer a lot of questions that people have had. And it was really fun to go through and look at all of this history. And so that that is the topic of today's episode. It is taking a look at the points in history that are used as plot points in the National Treasure movie and really figuring out what is fact and what is fiction. And I just got to say, I think y'all are going to be impressed, not just at our expertise and putting this all in one one place for you guys, but um, also figuring out just how much of this film is based on either true historical fact or something that actually did happen, but, you know, changing the context a little bit. And so um, with that, before we get started, Emily, why don't you remind everyone where they can find us on podcasting platforms and social? Uh, So you can find us um, on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you like to get your podcasts. Um, We are National Treasure Hunt and... Our Twitter handle is at NT Hunt Podcast. Uh, so please give us a follow there uh, for some more updates about episodes and anything else that you guys might want to know. Yeah, and our new episodes come out every other Wednesday at noon Eastern time. So check back, subscribe, or if you just subscribe, you don't even have to think about it. I'm just saying. Um, so so here's how this episode is going to go. We are going to pick out um, a handful of historical elements from the movie that are important plot points, remind you of how they came up in the movie, and then ask the question, are they real? So we're going to keep this as chronological as possible. We're going to go in-depth in the beginning, and then we'll end, I think we'll try to end this episode with a speed round of a few smaller history points that um, we'll just, we'll close out on um, that'll also help us lead into some future episodes. So so what, what are we starting with, Emily? Well, we are going to start with the Charlotte ship. So as you know, the, that is basically kind of the first thing where actually we see Nick Cage when he's looking for the Charlotte, as I mentioned previously in the Arctic Tundra. The, the yeah. secret lies with Charlotte, right? And so... <laughs> Uh, And when they uncovered the ship in the Arctic Circle in the movie, um, the first thing we see of the ship is actually the bell that is attached to the ship, and we see that it reads Boston, Massachusetts. So, is the Charlotte real? Well, it turns out that the Charlotte used in the movie is actually based on a real ship, but the real ship was an English merchant ship that was built in 1784. Um, 
yeah, it's pretty interesting. It was used for various transport of goods, but also transport of prisoners to Australia. Australia? That's... Okay. <laughs> yeah, you but that's... You don't really a... hear of that that often. No, maybe National Treasure 3, right? <laughs> yeah. The secret lies in Australia. Yeah, uh, with the kangaroos. But <laughs> interestingly enough, that point doesn't make this impossible as it ties into the movie. Because... In history, this ship was actually sold to a merchant in Quebec, Canada, in the early 1800s. And it's said that it was lost off the coast of Newfoundland in November of 1818. And to this day, the ship has not been recovered. So maybe we should be uh, heading up to Newfoundland with some metal detectors, per the movie, of course. Yeah. but as we said, in National Treasure, the ship was dug up in the Arctic Circle, which does include parts of Newfoundland. Oof. So that, is, at least, is based on real information about a real ship. Though, of course, the ship wasn't from Boston, as it was in the movie, and it hasn't actually been found. I can't think of any reason why they would change the ship's origin to Boston for the movie, besides the fact that this is very American history-based. And I guess if they were hiding a clue to the treasure on a ship, and then the treasure was brought to America by people who were leaving England, maybe it wouldn't make much sense for it to be on an English ship. Hmm. And also, maybe they just wanted that Boston connection, because, you know, at the end of the movie, they do the one if by land, two if by sea, in order to tie us to an important event that happened in Boston. So maybe they you know, wanted to get the Boston plugged in somewhere where it actually had merit as a real thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. But I kind of like that, right? You know, we take a piece of real history of a lost ship and our protagonists have to find that lost ship to kick off their adventure. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, and I think we're going to find that in in a lot of the things that we uh, look at today, actually. Now, uh, in terms of time... um, course this movie is not based on a true story or anything the ship wasn't actually found is it possible that in this fictional world charles carroll would have known about a pipe that was on this ship right and i should say that charles carroll of carrollton um was a real person he was a founding father he did in fact die in 1832 as the movie portrayed However, we should note that he was not a Freemason. Oh. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get into the Freemasons in a later episode, but his son was. Anyway, as on that tangent, could Charles Carroll have been aware of this pipe? And if the ship was lost in 1818 and Carroll died in 1832, it is, in fact, possible. So, yeah. temporally, got to hand it to the writers. Checks out. All right, so... so There's your answer on the Charlotte. What's next, Em? Next, we're going to kind of go right off of that, really, into the the pipes that you just mentioned, the Meerschaum pipes. Okay, so the Meerschaum pipe is, of course, the next clue that Ben Gates and his crew find on the Charlotte in basically the bowels of the ship. Um, Meerschaum pipes, if anyone is a pipe aficionado out there, you might know that this is a real type of pipe. It's made from a white clay-like material called sepiolite. And for any scientists out there, sepiolite, also known as Meerschaum, is a magnesium silicate material. 
So sepialite is most famously mined in Turkey, and these pipes that were made from meerschaum came to be popularized starting around the year 1723. So that makes it temporally correct if it were going to be hidden by one of America's founding fathers or another Freemason. Um, you know, based on the year 1723 alone. Now, fun fact, the next popularized type of pipe was made out of briarwood. That's, you know, the next popular pipe in historical chronology, if you will. And those briarwood pipes entered the scene in the 1820s. So if you're really following the chronology of the founding fathers, someone like Charles Carroll, who died in 1832, might have smoked one of these later in life. But... Yeah, so there's a lot of history in pipes that I learned about for for this particular point on the show. Unsurprisingly, though, Meerschaum pipes in particular, which are still made today, are known for their intricate carvings. So that's right in the movie, too. Mm -hmm. You know, so we saw in the movie the beautiful bowl of the pipe that was carved like a ship. And then, of course, on the stem, we have the uh, the. The, the actual clue uh, wrapped around the stem, which is one of Emily's favorite parts in the movie, I know. Yeah, you know, he he that he takes that beautiful thing and he bloodies it up. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do to find those treasure clues, man. It's true. I mean, what else is he going to use as ink in the bowels of a ship in the middle of the Arctic tundra? Good point, good point. And interestingly enough, um, you might be familiar with Meerschaum pipes, even if you are not a National Treasure super fan. And that's because Meerschaum pipes were made famous by Sherlock Holmes. So if you think of the classic portrait or silhouette of Sherlock Holmes, and he is smoking a very curved pipe, that pipe is called a calabash pipe. And the stem of that pipe is derived from a dried out gourd, basically a squash. And that gourd stem is attached to a meerschaum bowl. So you've been exposed to meerschaum pipes all along. Without even knowing it. Without even knowing it. It's just all that pop culture becoming a part of your brain noggin. So so, so that's, that's our intel on the Charlotte and meerschaum pipes. The next thing we're going to go into, of course, is probably the most important clue of the whole movie it's definitely the one that gets the most attention by pop culture enthusiasts and meme culture and that is the ottendorf cipher found on the back of the declaration of independence emily can you tell us once and for all whether or not there's an ottendorf cipher on the back of the declaration of independence well i am very sorry to inform you of this but there is not however shocker (laughs) <laughs> yeah, shocker, right? However, we did learn some really cool stuff about Ottendorf ciphers in my deep dive uh, looking into this. So Ottendorf ciphers are also known as a book cipher. And the one that they find on the back of the Declaration of Independence, they're actually using individual letters to replace rather than words. So what this kind of looks like is that the coded text will be groups of numbers, really, in groups of three. And these Groups of numbers will correspond to a page, a line, and a word in what they refer to as the plain text or the source material uh, which is used to decode this coded message. Now, interestingly enough, these coded messages require some kind of book or document for you to be able to reference these page lines and words from. So in the movie we actually find out that the document that they're using, which Aubrey pointed out really well in the last podcast, are the silence do-good letters. Now, 
Interestingly enough, these Ottendorf ciphers were first developed around the 1500s, and they're primarily used to send coded messages, particularly those with sensitive information. And this really occurred during war. It became increasingly popular, oddly enough, during the Revolutionary War. So that's really cool because Revolutionary War is like a major crux of this movie. Yes, exactly. And so what that means is that temporally, this might have actually been a thing that was happening at the time that the Declaration of Independence was created. So that's kind of awesome that at least based on when these ciphers were used, it would be realistic enough that it could have shown up on the back of something like the Declaration. But, you know, we said that there is no code on the back of the actual Declaration of Independence. But could this plot point have been inspired by anything else in history, do you think? Well, actually, funny that you ask. Now, there's no direct evidence for this that I could find. But to me, it seems like this plot point could have been based off of the Beale cipher. So let me tell you a little bit about that. So there was a guy named Thomas Jefferson Beale. <laughs> Pretty wait, wait, cool wait. name. Wait, so that, that goes really well with Benjamin Franklin Gates, right? <laughs> yeah. And- What's it? Uh, Patrick. What is what's his dad's name? Patrick something Gates. (laughs) (laughs) Someone did something in history and had fun. But I love that. Thomas Jefferson Beale. Okay, go on. Yeah. So Thomas Jefferson Beale supposedly found this treasure somewhere near Santa Fe in 1818. And he took it upon himself to write letters describing the treasure and to put them in this iron strongbox that he left with his friend Robert Morris. So Robert Morris tells the story that there were three ciphers in the strongbox. The first cipher had the exact location of the treasure. The second cipher contained what was descriptions of what was actually in the treasure vault. And then the third cipher included the names and addresses of people that were involved in finding and curating this treasure. Now, what's actually really, really cool is that this guy named James Ward actually was able to break the second cipher. So the other two haven't been broken. But the second cipher, James Ward was able to break. And he did this by using a key that was based on the first letter of words in the Declaration of Independence. And you're not making this up. I am not making this up. So it seems like there are way too many coincidences here for this not to have been in some way based on this story that we see in the movie. Yeah, that would be some serious inspiration there. And even if they didn't do it intentionally, the writers should definitely be saying that they did. Because this is, wait, sorry, I'm going to go off track for a second. So there's a treasure somewhere near Santa Fe that no one knows where it is right now? Yeah, well, some people claim that they know where it is. There, there are people who have done other iterations of finding it, and they claim that they found the specific, like, mountain cave thing that it's in, but nobody's actually found it. So I, I don't think those people actually have solved the ciphers, because there are probably different texts that the ciphers are based mm, off of, rather than true. it all being from the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that would only be too cool. Maybe the next one's the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Maybe. I mean, there are three ciphers, three major documents. I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, Well, that was, that's actually mind-blowing. I kind of love knowing that. Yeah. 
So with that under our belts, let's move on to our next uh, hot topic here, which is something that comes up leading to another clue, basically, is the Independence Hall etching on the back of the $100 bill. Yes. So this one, this is one of the things that I really enjoyed researching um, for this episode. There were two big ones for me, and this is this is the first. Um, before I go into detail, I do want to point out that an interesting motif in the movie is this recurring theme of U.S. currency. You might not have noticed it before, but U.S. currency actually makes three different appearances in the first National Treasure movie. So within the first five minutes of the film, Ben's grandfather shows him a $1 bill, basically in the opening scene um, at the silence do good letters at the Franklin Institute our bad guy Ian Howe gives the kid who's doing the decoding a $100 bill and then of course not five minutes later Ben is using another $100 bill at Urban Outfitters to solve the clue that basically uh, comes from the silence do good letter interpretation of the Ottendorf cipher and so you might recall that what Ben is doing here is he's taking a look at the back of the $100 bill using a water bottle as a magnifying glass, which we'll talk about in a later episode. <laughs> of course, you wouldn't do that. Emily loves that, too. Um, so he's taking a look, and what he's trying to figure out is what time is shown on the clock on the etching of the Independence Hall on this bill, because there's a clock tower at Independence Hall. So yes, it turns out that in fact, there is a picture of Independence Hall on the back of several iterations of the $100 bill, starting all the way back in 1929. And also, for anyone who might have a casual 100 in their wallet, you would see, uh, if you have one of those new 100s that started circulation in 2013, that also has uh, Independence Hall on the back. In the movie... Based on the time when the movie was released in 2004, the bill that they would be looking at is uh, the one that was in circulation from 1996 to 2013. Now, according to the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing, that iteration of the bill's Independence Hall clock actually read the time of 4.10, whereas in the movie, the clock is shown to read 2.22, which we find out later actually means 3.22, daylight savings time, more on that later. In any case, the clock read 4.10 in real life, um, but in 2013, when a new version of the bill began circulating, the clock was changed to the time of 10.30, again, not 222. Hold on, Aubrey. Let me just get this straight. So you're telling me that they actually lied to us when they told us that the clock said 222, <laughs> one of the major plot points in the movie. Yeah, it's really not clear why they did that because the time 222 versus 410 isn't that different and you almost definitely would still have a shadow. You yeah, know, and they on... still could have played with the daylight savings time. Exactly. Now, have you, I don't, I don't know about you, but as a grad student, I, I don't have $100 bills in my purse. <laughs> but have you been able to verify this on the back of a $100 bill? Um, I haven't personally, but I have done a lot of Google image searches. Okay. And there are lots of zoomed in versions where, in my opinion, it's pretty darn clear that it's 410 or at least around the four o'clock hour. So, um, hmm. so I don't know if there's a reason for that movie magic. There was nothing I could find online. I don't know if there were any like copyright type of issues there where they couldn't you know use a real bill but but there you have it the time on there is not actually correct in the movie but things do get 
pretty interesting. One thing that people ask a lot is why the time was changed from 4.10 to 10.30 on the newest iteration of the 100. And there's actually not much historical significance to either of these times. It turns out that both the 1996 version of the bill and the 2013 version of the bill feature etchings that were crafted by J.C. Benzing in the 1920s. And it's thought that he created these etchings based on photographs, which just happened to be taken at the times 410 and 1030. Very so, convenient. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's, you know, people want to find all of these, you know, wacky significance to the times. And I'm sorry, but there's not. However... There is something else we need to delve into here in terms of history and the movie. You might recall that Ben notes that the etching on the $100 bill was actually created by a friend of Ben Franklin. And that would give some justification for why there would be a clue to the treasure in the etching if it was contemporaneous with Ben Franklin and the Founding Fathers. But probably not going to blow anyone's mind here that Ben Franklin died in the late 1700s. Hundreds, so around 1790, not around the 1920s when J.C. Benzing was doing these etchings. So while that tiny point is historically inaccurate, it is likely that the movie writers were drawing on something that does come from history. And here's what I mean by that. The movie writers were likely making reference to John Trumbull, who is a Revolutionary War veteran and later on an artist. So in 1780, Benjamin Franklin introduced John Trumbull to an artist in Europe for Trumbull to study under, basically, to get, I don't know, his artistic digs. And (laughs) (laughs) so Trumbull, it turns out, was known for painting revolutionary war images. But most importantly, since 1976, the U.S. $2 bill has featured an etching of one of Trumbull's paintings, and that painting was called Declaration of Independence. What? And, no way. Yes. Although I, that, can, I can say that I, as a grad student, do have $2 bills, so I can verify that this actually is on the back of $2 bills. <laughs> Okay, your facetiousness, not necessary. You can Google it again. But basically, this is really cool because this painting called Declaration of Independence, which depicts a scene inside of Independence Hall, was commissioned in the year 1817. So just to wrap all of this up, because I know this is kind of complicated here. Yes, Independence Hall etching does exist on the $100 bill. No, the time is not 222 or 322 for that matter, and it was not etched by Benjamin Franklin's friend. But, yes, Ben Franklin's friend did a different etching image of Independence Hall, which does appear on a different bill, the $2 bill. So, I just thought that was so mind-blowing and and crazy. Uh, it's one yes, of those things. Fascinating. It, it's just like uh, the point you made, Emily, with the Ottendorf cipher on the declaration. It's like there's nothing you're going to find online saying that this was the definite inspiration for the movie writers. Sure. But if it wasn't, this is a very strange coincidence. <laughs> Extremely. Um, And so I just got to point out before we leave this topic, I thought it was really cool learning a lot about U.S. currency when I was researching for this particular point. Um, So if you're interested in learning more about U.S. currency and all of its distinguishing features, there are a lot of cool exposés on uscurrency.gov and you should totally check it out.
So with that, we will leave our point on Independence Hall and US currency and move to our next topic, which happens around the same scene. Um, and that is going into the Liberty Bell and the Centennial Bell, both of which make appearances in the film. Yeah, so as you know, in the film, we see the uh, Independence Hall clock tower on the back of this $100 bill that Aubrey was just talking about. Some of the characters know that they need. this means they need to go to the bell tower. Ben immediately knows he has to go to Independence Hall and look in the bell tower. As Aubrey mentioned in the last episode, why he had to climb all the way up into the bell tower to find this clue, we're not <laughs> sure. It probably could have seen the shadow from down below, but it made for some good action. Now, what's important about this is that the Liberty Bell actually meant something different to both Ian and Ben. So while Ben knew that he needed to go and look in the bell tower, Ian thinks this means that he needs to go to where the Liberty Bell currently is, which is the Liberty Bell Center, which is not far from Independence Hall. As we see uh, in a scene in the movie, Ian ends up being pretty close to where uh, Ben goes to look at the clock tower. So... While looking into this, I found some interesting information. So now the Liberty Bell, as I mentioned, is no longer hanging in the bell tower of Independence Hall. And this is for a few reasons, but the main reason is because of the fact that the bell was cracked. Now, the original crack actually occurred during the first test ring of the bell. So <laughs> right off the bat, they had some issues. Good start. <laughs> So what happened then was that the bell was melted down and it was actually reforged in Philadelphia by Pass and Stowe, which is why the current Liberty Bell reads Pass and Stowe and says Philadelphia on it. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is that the actual crack that people think is the crack that silenced the Liberty Bell is actually a crack that was made in an attempt to repair it. So the really large crack that runs down the center of the bell actually didn't silence the bell. It's a much smaller crack that runs diagonally up and to the right from the man-made crack and goes through the word liberty. That's hilarious. So basically the famous crack that is considered the distinguishing feature, I'm pretty sure it's part of the Philadelphia Phillies logo, is yes. <laughs> it, it's not actually the big bad crack. No, that was actually, it was, a, it was a crack that they made in order to try to repair it because they thought that keeping the pieces of metal apart would actually prevent further damage to the bell when it was rung again and again. So in order to fix the cracking of the bell, they actually made a larger crack. Bigger crack. <laughs> yeah, you know, super logical. Hey, I mean, but, but uh, they had to retire the bell anyway. Yeah, they did. And... So the bell, what we do know is that before it was retired, the bell was rung in Independence Hall, or what used to be known as the State House Bell Tower, on July 8th, 1776, right after the Declaration of Independence was first publicly read. So if we're thinking about timing in terms of getting a clue on the back of the Declaration of Independence that suggests that you need to look in the bell tower where the uh, Liberty Bell was contained, this actually matches up as the bell would have been in the bell tower at this time. And then just a quick note, because they do mention the Centennial Bell. The Centennial Bell is what's currently hanging in uh, the bell tower now. And it was created for the United States Centennial and was put in Independence Hall Bell Tower many years later in 1874. 
And something that's actually kind of interesting, it doesn't really have to do with the movie, but I just thought it was cool, is that this bell was actually made of metal from four different cannons. So, um, Can- there like, were, like cannons, like, like cannon cannons used during war. Yeah. Huh. So it, there was an important battle, uh, in the revolutionary war, the battle of Saratoga and two of the cannons, one from the British side and one from the American side were melted down. And then there was an important battle in the civil war was, we know the battle of Gettysburg and they used one cannon from the union side and one cannon from the Confederate side to meld all of these events together and create the centennial bell. That is incredibly poetic. And also, I'm sure this is the reason, but just like it really hits you that they wanted to create a bell that was commemorating American history. And that's exactly what they did. Exactly. Yeah. So just to quickly kind of give you a a quick recap. Yes, the centennial bell is now the one that's hanging in Independence Hall. It was the Liberty Bell at the time that the Declaration of Independence was being written. So it's possible that the clue that they were able to see from the the bell tower actually makes sense in the context of uh, when that bell was hanging there. Awesome. I love, I just, sorry, I'm still like loving that fact about the cannons, but that, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to move right along um, to Trinity Church and our clue, uh, which was here at the wall, which is what they found with the spectacles that they got from this Independence Hall clue. It's an ocular device, Emily. Ocular device, yes. But, but yeah, we're going to talk now here at the wall in Trinity Church. This um, aside from the whole John Trumbull painting Independence Hall thing, this is the other favorite thing that I learned about during my research for this episode. Of course, in the movie, the clue here at the wall is seen on the back of the Declaration of Independence the first time they look at it, you know, before they realize they need to do the flippy thing with the glasses. And so this leads our our crew to Trinity Church at the intersection of Wall Street and Broadway in New York City. And straight up, I'm going to hit you with the, the bottom line up front. This is all basically completely true. Everything that they say about this particular location in New York City in the movie. According to author Michelle Young, uh, who's done some historical research on these streets in New York, Broadway really was named Heer Street, more specifically De Heer Straat, because it's, I think, Dutch. Um, but it started even before that as, and I'm sorry if I pronounced this wrong, Wekwaskic Trail which was a Native American trail that followed a natural ridge in the land. So Heerstraat, or Gentleman Street, as it was known, was one of the two main streets, like actual roads, formed in the area when it was colonized. So, of course, Heerstraat extended from the wall that was built to protect the Dutch settlers from English encroachment. So that's where Wall Street comes from. This wall was starting to be built all the way back in 1653. And Wall Street, again, was eventually built along the route of this wall. Um, And so we have an intersection here of Heerstraat, so Broadway, and Wall Street. Now, one of this wall's two gates was, in fact, located at Heerstraat across from... Trinity Church. Yeah, exactly. And a fun fact about Trinity Church, which is one of the very few national treasure locations that Emily and I haven't visited together. We're going to have to do a New York City trip soon. Um, I want to go to Trinity Church. 
we're going to go to Trinity Church and we have to go to the USS Intrepid. Fun fact about Trinity Church that, um, again, doesn't have anything to do with the movie, but is cool, is the fact that Alexander Hamilton is buried there, Ooh. which, you know, more history. And Trinity Church was, now we're going to get into our times here, it was chartered by England's King William III in 1697. So we're going to start thinking about temporal arrangements here. A treasure hidden by the founding fathers could have been stored beneath Trinity Church, right? 1697 was when it was chartered. But the treasure would have most logically been hidden, given what we know about how it's like well beneath the church, as the church was being built or sometime in that period. So if that assumption's correct, that would mean that the movie's treasure was buried in New York City around the year 1700. So that means that all of the clues describing where that treasure would be found would have to have come after the year around 1700. And at least all the clues that we've dug into really deeply today did. So I think that's that's really cool. Um, Whether that was intentional or not by the writers, well done team. Um, (laughs) All this continuity looks absolutely perfect, right? But there is one fact that I would be remiss to not point out that kind of throws a little wrench in it and that's the fact that the first trinity church burnt down in 1776 and was actually rebuilt twice and that means that the parkington lane crypt which is the entrance really to the tunnel system that takes you to the treasure would have needed to be rebuilt in a post-founding father's era by someone or multiple people who knew about the treasure and where it was located and just given the fact that you know in this movie world, the treasure had never been found, and there wasn't necessarily any rumor that the movie tells us about about there being, you know, a treasure at Trinity Church. That seems a little unlikely. But if you if you ignore that fact, <laughs> that, <laughs> that fact that the church has been rebuilt, everything else about that is super on point. The whole here at the wall and Trinity Church, which I find, you know, I really appreciate that. So that's so cool, isn't it? And it's one of those things that. You know, I've just been really thrilled to be able to take all of these different historical pieces and put them in one place for people to think about. Um, So I know, for instance, my mother, who's a history teacher, is going to absolutely love everything about this episode. But let's jump into our last deep dive before we go into our speed round. Emily, in the film, when we find the treasure, one of the things that Abigail actually points out, which she's absolutely mystified by, is that part of this treasure includes scrolls from the library at Alexandria. So what can you tell us about these scrolls? And is it possible that they would be in such a mythical treasure? Yeah, so this is a great question. And this is actually one of the one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning that I always kind of wondered about if it was actually factual that these could have been here. So I did a little bit of digging, and it seems that the library, we're going to get some weird dates up in here because we're starting to get uh, BC with some of our dates, and then we switch to AD, so just keep that in mind. Bear with us. (laughs) Yes. The library seems to have been established in the mid-200 BC era, and the library really... the One of the main things that the library did was acquire a bunch of these papyrus scrolls, And they're said to be between 40,000 to 400,000 of these scrolls, all papyrus, that were there. Now, part of the library and its collection were actually burned by Julius Caesar in 48 BC. And a lot of people think that this is the point at which all of the contents of the library were completely destroyed. 
But actually, there are mentions of it after uh, it was burned down. So it's likely that it was rebuilt and that not all of the scrolls were lost. So we've kind of tackled that first uh, idea that all of the scrolls might have been burned there. So we're still going strong with the possibility that there could be some scrolls left for uh, Abigail to have found in uh, the treasure vault. Unfortunately, not too long after, in 270 to 275 AD, there was a rebellion in Egypt and an attack in Alexandria that historians think likely would have destroyed whatever remained in the library at the time. So that's not looking so good for our heroes in terms of... Can I ask a quick question then? Does that mean that you can go to no museum in the world today and see a scroll from the library at Alexandria? If historians think that it destroyed everything that was left. Yeah, so the only thing I could find evidence of still existing was this thing called the Pinnakes. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. And this was actually developed as a catalog of authors and their known works during the time of the Library of Alexandria. So we know that as a whole, this document didn't survive, but there are fragments of it that you can go places and see. And there are references to it in other texts. So we have some idea of what the basic structure of this document was. So that's the only one that I could really find to suggest that an actual fragment of something that was in the Library of Alexandria uh, Mm. could be seen elsewhere. Everything else just seems to be references to ideas that were probably on the scrolls themselves. So this kind of led me to question whether or not the scrolls, you know, if some of them could have been, you know, smuggled out or taken out, say they survived all of this and we just haven't found them to like put them in a museum or anything, if that was even realistic in terms of the timeline of the movie and when the Knights of Templar actually found this treasure originally. So that led me down a bit of a rabbit hole, uh, which was interesting, where we found that Solomon's Temple was constructed between 1000 and 900 BCE and was later destroyed multiple times, which is actually something that we're going to go into in a future episode when we talk about the, the Freemasons and the Knights of Templar. So it actually seems that the Library of Alexandria wasn't built at the time that this temple was created. But there is a mention in the movie that the treasure started as early as ancient Egypt, which would be around the time of the treasure. So basically, it's possible that some scrolls from Alexandria could have made their way into a vault in one variation of the temple before it was given to the Templars. Because, and I think it's important to point out, that the Temple of Solomon was created and destroyed in different iterations multiple times through history. Um, and it's it's been renamed and, and everything, but this location um, where the Templars, you know, existed at some point, and we'll get into that a little bit more, it was there, and so it's possible, is what you're saying. Yeah, and then this, uh, you know, to just kind of round all this out, the scientist in me got kind of thinking, would these things even survive in the conditions that they were in? So, so you mean I, like under Trinity Church? or Under Trinity Church, yeah. Like, would papyrus from all the way back in ancient Egypt actually still be even viable to be in existence? That's now? a great question. <laughs> so I did a little bit of digging, and what it seems is that there have actually been papyri found in Egypt from what seems to be around 2,566 
BCE. So like that's way back in Egyptian history, even before the Library of Alexandria. And these scrolls have actually been found to detail some information about the building of the Great Pyramids. So what this tells us is that the prospect of finding scrolls from Alexandria, which were sensibly much more recently made, right, in, in comparison to when the scrolls about the Great Pyramids were made, isn't actually impossible. And further, that these scrolls were actually found in caves in Egypt, which means that these conditions, which were similar to the conditions that we see in the movie when they get to the kind of the treasure vault underneath uh, Trinity Church, aren't necessarily destructive to papyrus. So it is possible that some papyrus could have lasted during all of this time. What an awesome find, Em. Well, I, I mean, we went into detail on like six or seven main points in the movie. And so just to round it out, it's important to note that there's obviously way more historical references in the movie that we just don't have time to cover. Um, in part because, you know, things like the Founding Fathers themselves or the Declaration of Independence or the Freemasons, like Emily just mentioned, we will go into in more detail in a future episode. So you're going to want to check back for that. But we do have a few other points that we're going to talk about in our speed rounds. We're going to go into much less detail, but we, we felt it would be sort of we'd be remiss if we didn't at least acknowledge these historical points and address whether or not they're legit in our, uh, in our episode here today. So Emily, let, kick us off with the speed round. What's the first one? So the first one we're going to be looking at is the Templar treasure. Okay. So of course, this is the basis of the entire movie in the movie. The Knights of the first crusade supposedly found the treasure under the temple of Solomon, then named themselves the Knights Templar vowed to protect this treasure. And the rest is national treasure history. So is it true? I'm sure you're thinking like, obviously not because this is a movie and it's crazy. Well, here's the facts, guys. While we cannot say that National Treasure was based on a true story, it turns out that it was based on a real legend. According to legend, the real-life Templars excavated at the site of the Temple of Solomon and found treasure. Now, of course, we don't know if that's true. It is legend. But we should note that the temple, as we mentioned um, during our, our time talking about the scrolls that the temple was long gone when the Templars got there and they did get there in the year 1120, which was after the first crusade, but the legend's real. So how's that? That's pretty awesome. I have to say, mm -hmm. uh, our next uh, category in our speed round is the new England current. Yes. The new England current, um, in the movie, for your refresher, Ben Gates notes that Ben Franklin wrote 14 letters to his brother's newspaper, the New England Current, in the year 1722 under the pseudonym Mrs. Silence Duguid. And I will note that we will do a deep dive on the Silence Duguid letters at some point later on in our show, but... Ben Franklin's older brother, James, did indeed found the New England Current in Boston in the year 1721. The Silence Do Good letters were very real, very much written by Ben Franklin when he was a teenager. And although the original letters no longer exist, you can find copies of them online, and we will discuss them in detail in a future episode. Our next category is the Two If By Sea Clue. Yes, yeah, so this this is happens obviously very late in the movie, um, where we are in the chambers really beneath Trinity Church, where Ben and his our other protagonists really need to ditch Ian, 
And so they tell him a fake clue that the lantern that they see is the next clue and it indicates that they should go to Boston. Um, they, of course, correct themselves and say that this is indeed fake after Ian is gone because there were two lanterns hung in Old North Church in Boston when the British were coming by Robert Newman during which what would actually start the American Revolutionary War. So the fake clue was of course fake. It was really two if by sea in real life. Robert Newman, the sexton of Old North Church in Boston, and a couple um, colleagues or pals of his hung two lanterns in the church steeple to warn of the British coming. And fun fact, the lanterns were actually hung for less than a minute so that the British wouldn't see them and get suspicious. Huh. Yeah, cool. so they're uh, pretty smart dudes, but uh, I guess yeah. they were about to secede from, you know, England, so they had to be, or they weren't <laughs> going to succeed. Succeed at seceding. <laughs> anyway, I'm funny. Um, okay, Emily, why don't you take us home with our last um, piece of the speed round here and this is something that makes an appearance throughout the movie but especially at the very end leading to the treasure room and that is the symbol of the all-seeing eye yeah so the all-seeing eye has as many meetings it's actually uh it can be called the all-seeing eye it's also known as the eye of providence and there's an entire urban dictionary article about this where they actually reference national treasures specifically in the article the eye is typically seen inside of a triangle a lot of times it's put over top of a pyramid which is something that you can see throughout the movie as well as in the logo for our podcast and um, oh, yeah. it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't always have to be on top of a pyramid looking further into this I actually saw that it has a lot to do with the Freemasons. So I'm actually going to hold off on talking any more about this because I want to save that for the episode that we have where we do a deep dive into the Freemasons and the Knights of Templar. And that one is coming in a few weeks' time, so you shouldn't have to wait uh, that long to hear more about the All-Seeing Eye. Awesome. All right, well... That pretty much concludes our deep dive um, fact versus fiction look at the historical points and references made in the National Treasure movie. We, I don't want to speak for, for Emily, so I should say I have been, from this research and putting together this episode, even more impressed with the writers of this film than I was before. Um, I think it's really fascinating how many points that they use that are either completely historical fact or at least linked to something that really did happen in history. Uh, we hope this was fun for you and that you learned something today. Be sure to hit us up on Twitter at NT Hunt Podcast to tell us what your favorite fact was from today's episode or maybe what surprised you the most. We hope you will join us next time. Um, in our next episode, we will be going into more of the production side of National Treasure. So we're going to take a look at the behind the scenes of how the movie was filmed, uh, things like locations of filming and different little hints that, that we can pull for you there. So that'll be fun for anyone who likes the movie um, or wants to learn a little bit more about, you know, how Hollywood works. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. In any case, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.